You're listening to Salmon Farming Inside and Out, a podcast series brought to you by Aquaculture North America. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. Hello and welcome to another episode of Salmon Farming Inside and Out. I'm Marilyn de Guzman. And I'm Ian Roberts. Nice to be here with you, Marilyn, at the end of 2023. It is the end of the 2023 and nice to see you. And for this episode, I think we're, it, we've come to a point where we've, you know, collected um, a few episodes and we've talked to, uh, you know, some great minds in the aquaculture industry. So for this episode, we are going to have a look back on some of the most interesting quotes that we received from the guests that we've had here. And, you know, we also, as we always do, we have a guest who will chime in and sort of we can uh, talk about some of these quotes from his perspective and we'll go from there. And just before I introduce him, uh, we'll say that he comes from a journalistic background and that was on purpose because we wanted to review these quotes kind of from a journalist perspective or a trade media perspective, which I think gives us insight, especially to those inside the industry that are always wondering about those media headlines. So let's throw them under the bus in this episode. I can't wait. Um, I'd like to introduce Gareth Moore. He's uh, based in Scotland and writes and edits the aquaculture news website, fishfarmingexpert.com and Fish Farming Expert magazine. Both are owned by Norwegian publisher Ocean Space Media. Gareth started his career as a reporter on his local paper in Carlisle, covering everything from parish councils to the Lockerbie disaster before moving to the sub-editor's desk. He has more than 30 years experience, including 14 years at the Scotsman and Scotland on Sunday. He took up reporting again when he joined Fish Farm Expert around seven years ago. He's learned much about aquaculture in that time, but despite the title of his publications, he will never consider himself a fish farming expert. Welcome to the show, Gareth. Thank you. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Marilyn. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, let's let's just dive right into this, uh, Gareth, if we can. We, we've spoken to many experts over the last seven, eight, nine, maybe even 10 episodes now. So uh, for those listeners that haven't, they can go back in the files and listen to these full ep- episodes. Um, but we've had some interesting themes that we've talked about. And like I said in the introduction, would like to really have your inside knowledge as a journalist and a trade journalist reporting on aquaculture about your thoughts on these subjects. So the the first quote uh, that we'll kind of review here was from Chef Andrew Gruel. This was recorded back in July of, of 2023. And this is what Andrew Gruel had to say. I asked a panel of 200 consumers when we were working with the aquarium, you know, what's the healthiest protein out there? And all of them unequivocally said seafood. But then when you asked them what they consumed the most of, it was either chicken or beef. So there was this disparity. And I and in my final question, you know, in this kind of market research was, well, why aren't you eating more seafood? And they said, I just get so confused because of all of the headlines and all of the fear from mercury to farm seafood to PCBs to Colorado, you name it, right? Any of the hot topics that I just don't eat seafood because I don't know what to buy, where to buy and, and how to buy. So then they relegate themselves to eating chicken and beef, which... You know, I don't want to demarket any other proteins here, but I will say that, you know, we all know that seafood is the the healthiest. When you're sitting around at a cocktail party, people are going to talk about how they buy sustainable X, Y, and Z, and they want to save the environment. But that that's cocktail party talk. What people really 
what drives people to buy certain species or foods or what makes their food decisions when they go out to eat. It's cost, convenience, quality. And at the bottom of that list is sustainability or the eco-friendly nature of the product that they're buying. At the end of the day, that's the truth. So Gareth, interesting perspective from a chef who's been in the business for, for many years, uh, really talking about how and why consumers buy, um, in this particular case, seafood. So does any of this ring ring uh, ring true from your experience reporting about aquaculture over the last few years? I don't know if I uh, it rings true from a reporting point of view, but certainly from my own lifestyle point of view, it does. Yeah, um, you know we, we all know seafood is the healthiest of the animal proteins, um, but you know people want variety as well, and it is actually in a week. Say you're going out to do shopping for a week, you know you, you might buy two bits of fish. Um, that's generally what I do. Um, and, um, then that I'd buy other things as well. Not, not so much meat these days, I have to say, but, um, I, I guess you want different things. You want, you know, you want to mix up your, your eating. It's as simple as that, really. I'm not sure if I agree with them about the sustainability angle, though. I think, um, it, but it's certainly not, it's not, the, it's not top of that list. So maybe he's, maybe he's right. Maybe that's exactly what's <laughs> after. And maybe he's got it bang on. You know, it's people are concerned about it being sustainable, but they kind of now assume that supermarkets going to deliver that for you. So just one of one interesting uh, area from that quote is when he says people seem to be confused, you know, from all the headlines that they read and stuff like that. Do you think there's a responsibility here on the media side in terms of providing more information, more education for consumers? I think that very much depends on the type of media you're talking about because um, an awful lot of newspapers for instance uh, they're choosing their uh, news stories on a completely different criteria to that they're not really there to educate they're there to sell newspapers but to to interest people and possibly titillate people and to just get them to you know buy their newspaper um, and obviously in in uh, in the UK at least an awful lot of them are very politically motivated as well one one side or another but um, the education stuff, the food education stuff, I think will comes a long way down that list. And it's a difficult issue for seafood producers because, say, something like astaxanthin, the inclusion of that in a, in a salmon diet, is it's a perfectly legitimate thing to do. In fact, it'd be irresponsible not to um, for the fish uh, and for the consumer. But you then got to hold a, a consumer's attention for long enough to explain that no, it's not just a dye. In fact, it's not a dye. It is a, it is a very important supplement, and I'm not quite sure where you do that. Um, so it's no, I, I don't think it's necessarily down to the media. I think it's always useful to do, to educate the mainstream media themselves if possible, because you're. If, I think we people involved in in aquaculture. I obviously know a lot about it, but I think they are unaware of the of the ignorance of aquaculture um, by the man and woman in the street. I mean, it's it's a very it's still relatively low profile, and so that that bridge has to be crossed somehow. And maybe the best way to do it is to invite um, you know you target the journalists who are then going to target the people who receive the news, who devour the news, and maybe more effort should be put in that way. But you can't expect a journalist to come from Who's a, a jobbing journalist, if you like? Who's who's got, you know, yesterday he was in a courtroom 
tomorrow he's doing a story about a dog with two heads. He's um, you've got you can't expect them to to understand the background unless you you can either present it to them very very simply or you've already got them on board in some way or at least um, help to educate them about what's happening. The the second half of Andrew's. Uh comment is interesting let's just digest that for a second he talks about kind of polling what people say and what people do and that it might be vastly different you know if you ask people do they buy on sustainability it seems like the right answer to say yes but indeed when i go shopping i'm looking at cost convenience quality and and taste if i know the product um we see a lot of kind of the latest polls suggest but I would say reality suggests something else, especially considering that salmon is the top seafood choice in the UK, in Canada, if people are going for that seafood. So would you, uh, would you agree that, that polls maybe don't represent actual habits? Yes, I absolutely would. And I think that's true, not just of um, food consu- consumption. I think that's true of, of a lot of things. It's, um, it, you know, it's, certainly, it's certainly been the experience in the UK politically that that's been the case when you know, polls have just fallen flat on at least two referendums I can think of. I think the greatest honesty is often found when people open their purse or wallet, um, which is why also sometimes it's also better to look at the numbers of um, producing companies when they produce their quarterly statements than it is to look at their um, sort of published ethos or what they say they're going to do. Um, look at look at what they're spending and what they're earning. You know, the people who choose, uh, who make big financial decisions, for um, for institutional investors, they're the people who, again, you, you're seeing honesty there because people are, are making big decisions for for very large stakes. Okay, well, you know, we we just focused on kind of traditional media there, um, and and our our next guest that we're going to hear from that we interviewed back in June of this year is a, a young fellow named James Sibley who's taken on the role as seafood influencer on his TikTok channel and, and other social media. Um, this is what James had to say. Anybody who's doing like science and education on social media, you run into, and I'm sure you've seen this if you look at my channel, the loudest voices are often the angriest. And what I find is very interesting with that is if you go into any of my like videos that are relatively popular to very popular, there's a lot of misinformation in those comments. And I leave that intentionally. I have the authority as the creator to delete anything I want, but that's not how scientific discourse works. So that's James Sibley, a young fella doing social media, um, talking about kind of discourse online. And I know that your publications, uh, Gareth, also have some online content as well. So yeah, um, it's something I've noticed in my career is that those angry voices seem to dominate the uh, public comments and also notice that that our critics don't allow for discourse like you know publicly traded companies might allow for discourse and even your channels so what uh, what are we to do about this because i would think that if journalists look at some social media feeds they would think the discourse is all aligned you know perhaps on the critics channel everybody is against something not realizing that it's a heavily filtered feed uh, and content is removed if it disagrees with the author. Uh, James is saying he has a different approach. But what's your experience? Generally, uh, if I've um, put something on social media, you know, so, sometimes you'll you'll get one or two negative comments, and I generally will leave them up there too. And sometimes I'll respond to them, but it's very much about how much time you've got. I'll always be civil. 
and uh, I'll try to try to educate. But you know, I, I'm I'm also very much aware that that you know that the the people who are putting up those comments aren't aren't interested in listening. You know, to they they then they're not even there for me. They're there for their own coterie, if you like. It's a quite small circle, but it's quite a loud one. Their, their minds have been made up, you know, long before I took this job. I think. I mean, I see I see James's point. It's just something you have to do. I think if you want to wouldn't call it the moral high ground as such, but if if you really believe in communication um, and and what in what you're doing, then you have to you have to put up with these people. You just have to hope that you will um, eventually prevail. Honesty will prevail. Social media has really changed the way people consume information, and you know that's been sort of a double-edged sword. What are your thoughts on how social media has? sort of changed people's uh, views about aquaculture and the the propagation of some of the not-so-true things about uh, aquaculture and salmon farming? You know, I don't think the, there's as much harm being done as perhaps the aquaculture sector fears because I, I'm not convinced that people take a lot of what's on social media that seriously. Um, because it doesn't have an authority behind it. And it's also quite a lot of the places where you do see these messages being uh, promulgated, you know, they're not getting many hits. It's, it's, it, it is still a very, uh, they're, they're, they're speaking to themselves for, for a, a lot of the time. That doesn't mean they can't do damage um, by if, if they're not t- being honest. But in the, in the old days before social media, the access to media wasn't democratic because you, you, you had to own a newspaper, essentially. And, and in a way, that was good because you could, you know, you, certain responsibilities come with owning a newspaper or, or producing a newspaper, as you'll be aware. You have to, um, you, you have to stick with the rules or you, you'll get into trouble. Don't have that in social media. But equally, I think a lot of people are discerning enough to realize some of the things that are being put out aren't, aren't 100% true. People aren't stupid. They know if, if they're looking on um, a social media site that it isn't going to have the authority that um, a paid-for publication or a publication that it, um, is, 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 as a professional um, journalist working for it is going to have because they don't have the responsibility that professional journalists have. You know, it's, when it's someone's job, you, you, you do the thing properly because otherwise you'll be out of a job very shortly. Do you find you're competing with some of these clickbaits? And, and is that a challenge to sort of be able to get your message out there with all this noise i i guess i'm 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 not competing i'm in the i'm i'm not in the uh click chasing market i'm in the um provide the information market if you want to see it you know where to find it every print medium or every um online medium has a has a has a different approach uh you know there are other um aquaculture uh News websites that have have different approaches to me, um, to my to my own, because we're all, you know, s- some of them will do much much shorter, more sensationalist stories. Some of them will do um, a much more um, a sort of a general issue information rather than a particular news story. Um, and on and social media is 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 different again. But I can use it sometimes. I can you know I can see something on social media and I can say right okay there's a there's a story there. It's got to be of interest to the people who visit my site, but it's going to be presented in a completely different way to the way it's been presented on social media because it's got it's going to be the whole point in a way of, of what I do is to present news in a, in a very in a balanced format. I want people to come away being more informed 
after every every time they visit that my site. Not necessarily to have their beliefs reinforced. Social media is there. It's complete change from when I first started in the business. But you know, we were we were using typewriters then. So that's uh, that's how long ago that was. From from my point of view, it's it's not as much of a problem as perhaps it is for organizations, companies that have been mis- misrepresented. Because I'm I'm just another another guy presenting news about about the aquaculture area. I'm not the, I'm not the people on the end of it, and I can see why that would be more of a concern for um, the salmon farming industry, for an example, than it would be for for someone like myself. One of the uh, first guests that we had on the podcast was Linda Sam. She's a veteran of uh, salmon farming, worked in Tasmania and and in Canada, and we really wanted to understand uh, how salmon farming started in British Columbia specifically. And we got on the topic of kind of Norwegian investments and and why Norwegians had uh, particular interest in, in British Columbia and Canada. This is what Linda had to say. One thing that kind of sometimes is lost um, when people think about these salmon farming companies, and some of them have head offices in Norway or, or international, and some do not. But these are really well-developed corporate social responsible companies that are coming from Scandinavia. And obviously they want their business. It's important to be profitable, but not at all costs. And I think in Canada, in BC, my first experience with that kind of mindset and that holistic responsible approach really came from Scandinavian companies. And they were interested in the social aspect. They were interested in the environmental management aspect and the global aspect. So everything from, you know, changing oceans from biodiversity, but to climate change. So I found that interesting hearing that from Linda, because we often read in the papers and let's think that this world is kind of eh, corporate globalization, I guess everybody has business in, in every other country, but, and maybe I only see it because I work for a company that is Norwegian owned, but I, when the companies are introduced, they're often introduced as Norwegian owned, which seems like it's included in stories to be a negative. But as we hear from Linda, you know, these these companies have high regards for social, environmental, corporate res- uh, responsibility. So I, I don't know if you report on the same, Gareth, but but, you know, why do we introduce Norwegian owned before most of the companies uh, that work internationally? I don't think it's um, exclusive to Norway. I think you'll often find someone who's... There is a debate, obviously, pushed uh, to a degree by the by the people opposed to salmon farming, that um, areas of the world, like Scotland and like, say, Tasmania uh, now, have been, and well, and Chile to an extent, have been exploited by um, countries from abroad. That's not necessarily why I put Norwegian or Faroese or Canadian owned in, in front of a story, in front of a, a, a company's name. It's it's more just to remind people that where they're coming from. Because I suppose there is a different approach. Uh, each nationality has a different approach slightly because of that's the way these people grew up and um, and that, that's who they are. Um, so that's... But yeah, sure. I think I think certainly there are um, activists and people like that who uh, who like to draw attention to it, and that's because and they do that because they think it's um, you know it, it it will help them. It will uh, turn people against the company. Which, but 
as as you've as you've said, I mean, actually being Norwegian owned is by no means a a bad thing. They and I I do think you don't see it in other other types of company. You don't you don't see it in the Scotch whisky industry, for instance, even though many of those companies are owned by the likes of uh, Diageo, and I'm, I don't even know which country they're headquartered in, you know, but uh, I'm probably being unfair when I, when I, when I do that as a, as a journalist, you know, if, um, but it is an extra fact. It's an, you know, it's an extra fact of interest on some, on some occasions, you know, I, I did one the other day when I was writing about Nova Austral, which is a company in Chile. Now, Nova Austral is in a large amount of financial trouble, partly through the, its own fault and partly not. But um, it is also a Norwegian-owned company. And I, I would have thought if you were reading that, you might find that of interest, especially as they're talking about trying to find a, a way forward for this company and finding a, a solution to its debt. So there's sometimes perhaps when it's justified more than others. You, you mentioned, you know, about the activists and you know, those anti-farming groups. Is North America... Are they more loud here? You know what? What are you seeing? I think there there isn't a salmon farming region in the world that doesn't have some kind of organized activism uh, against it. I think there's a big problem in BC because of the fact that the the federal government has uh, hitched its wagon to the to to those who are opposed to salmon farming really very very cynically because I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that uh, it is causing a problem for wild fish. Um, there is a body in in Scotland, um, but that's kind of split between middle-class settlers in um, some of the Western Isles who don't like to see industrial activity of any kind. Um, and you've got um, some people who are uh, morally opposed to, to it, uh, vegans, that type of thing. And you've got also people within the government, um, uh, members of the Green Party and some members of the uh, Scottish National Party, but also some members of the of the opposition of the Conservative Party, um, sort of landed gentry who like to uh, blame salmon farming for the demise of uh, wild salmon in, in Scotland, even though it's happening on the East Coast where there is, in fact, there's never been any salmon farming. And so... You, and in Australia, well, in, in Tasmania, there's a there's a particular issue now uh, with a an endangered skate in um, uh, Macquarie Harbour. But that is that's very specific to that that one harbour. Generally, there, there, there is opposition there, but it's, the the Tasmanian government is very much behind salmon farming, completely. It's it's forever voicing its support for it, but the federal government's um, not so keen. And that's a that's a worry for the salmon farmers down there. Chile has got a problem with the government. Since the current government was uh, elected, it's very keen to get salmon farming out of protected areas. The problem is, these uh, many of these protected areas have only been created long after salmon farms were in there. And once again, that's a political issue. It doesn't have. There's no evidence to see that this, the salmon farming has caused problems. There are no indigenous wild salmon in Chile. Um, Perhaps the only place where there's no real problems are the Faroes and Norway. I was going to say Iceland, but uh, the singer Bjork is uh, causing a bit of a stir against salmon farming there at the moment. But 
generally speaking, Canada's uh, Western uh, um, Canada, um, the Pacific is, I think, it's the most egregious misuse of power that I've seen in um, from from a government to do with the industry. One of our most popular episodes uh, throughout the year was a, a, an episode where we interviewed Dr. Gary Marty, who's been a chief pathologist, fish pathologist uh, on North America's West Coast for the last uh, 20, 30 years. And he was speaking uh, specifically about communications of science when he mentioned this. Well, one of the differences we need to understand is the difference between science and medicine. Imagination, we might, a, a scientist would use the term hypothesis. Imagination is a very important part of science. A scientist comes up with idea. I think this might be a cause. I think this might be going on. And then they design an experiment to demonstrate whether their hypothesis or their imagination is correct. The challenge we get is when that imagination starts to drive public policy, especially in the area of fish diseases or fish health. And the frustrating part for me is that the imagination is getting more press than the evidence. So obviously, you know, as, as Gareth, you were just speaking about public policy in British Columbia, <laughs> you know, um, Dr. Gary Marty alludes to the issue around communication of science and, and how, when it's misused, can become policy. So what do you think about his comments about perhaps how science is communicated um, and how speculation kind of trumps fact in many of the headlines that, that I have read over the last few years anyway? It, it seems to be people can't remember more than about eight words. So if you present those eight words in, on, a, on tweets or um, other social media posts and you keep repeating and repeating and repeating it, you hope that it will eventually become fact. And um, it is a, it's, it's the same. It's the problem that the industry has with, with many facets of its production in that they all involve just trying to sit someone down and explain something um, with some background for one or two minutes. And it's hard to get people to do that these days. Yes, I mean, he's, he's perfectly correct. I mean, people do, people hear something and it sticks. And um, the, the, I guess the only way to counter that is to keep repeating, try and present the evidence. And, but, you know, who, who does that? And, and you have to do that in a succinct as possible. That's, that's, that's the difficulty that the industry faces. It has to, um, I would say, it would maybe should put a lot more effort and resources into it if it's, if it's concerned. Um, but if it's, once it's reached government level, I, I don't know where you begin. You know, I watched, sat through two public inquiries into salmon farming in, uh, held by, uh, carried out by the Scottish Parliament um, in recent years. And um, it was slightly depressing seeing the lack of knowledge that elected members had of the industry uh, who were about to make quite important decisions for that industry. That, that's an interesting point. I think we get we go back to you mentioned, you know, when reporters, especially the main mainstream journalists, you know, they cover one event and they move on to the next one. So yeah. um, and it seems like the industry at least here in BC or in North America, it seems like it's just, they're always just putting up fires. Like as a story comes out and they're just responding to it, there's there's probably 
you know, as you said, more needs to be done, being more proactive. And I think uh, Ian, the Aquaculture Alliance organization, you're doing a campaign right now. So I think we need more of that, right, Garrett? Like, you know, being more proactive rather than just reactive and putting up fires when uh, a news report comes out and then just, you know, re reacting to it. Yes, it, absolutely. I don't, I don't think you can educate enough. I think you could always spend more time, effort and money on it, but it's not easy. You've just got to keep doing it. Well, coming up to the end of the, the uh, episode here, but we definitely like to get one more quote in. And we had one fairly recently uh, in 2023 when we spoke to uh, Dr. Holly Freilich, uh, researcher on climate change and uh, talking about you know, really uh, how climate change may or may not affect certain species of aquaculture and fisheries. And this is what she had to say. We see winners in climate change areas, but we also see areas that are going to be heavily impacted. Um, and one area in particular that we see that's pretty consistent, um, which also matches wild capture fisheries and agricultural models, is that kind of equatorial band, unfortunately, where a lot of aquaculture tends to happen, um, especially in Asia, is going to be kind of heavy hit for especially for um, uh, finfish and particularly bivalves. So it really depends if we're talking about northern reaches, we actually see like some impacts um, or at least uh, challenges for say areas of Norway. But at the same time, we see regions open up because you see warmer waters that allows some expansion of suitability in some areas. So offshore aquaculture could be more doable in areas that right now are just too cold. It was interesting for me, hearing that from, from Holly, as we heard, because first of all, finfish seems a little more protected than bivalves. Uh, and we're talking, when we're talking climate change, I think we asked her and we're 20, 40, 50 years out here when we're talking. But she also noted an opportunity for the colder climates, uh, especially finfish of, of new species, which, uh, you know, maybe maybe good in the future. So from your perspective, Gareth, have you seen a change in reporting over the last decade uh, with new species coming in or, or, you know, unique responses to the challenge of climate change, which maybe we really haven't felt yet, but we will in future years? I can't say I've seen a lot, no. Um, not in terms of change of species. Um, I think I mean, if you're looking at it from a, a UK point of view, the th thing, although the temperatures have got warmer, they haven't got that much warmer. No one's going to start putting tilapia in pens in um, of Scotland anytime soon. Um, obviously, everyone is concerned about climate change. The, the salmon industry has its problems with um, uh, biological challenges, partly partly brought brought about by the fact that the the water just isn't getting that cold in winter anymore. So you're, you have your problems with um, um, sea lice and um, anemic gill disease and things like that occurring much earlier in the year, which is, well, that's that's been the case the last couple of years. So that's a difficulty. Um, and I haven't really come across anyone talking about any different species. Um, well, I think people have looked into them and then just written, written the idea off, at least for the time being. I think it would have to be quite a, quite a significant change in, in, in the sea temperature before before that would happen. I think mostly uh, it, it's unfortunately more of a negative than a positive at the moment. When you're looking at the sort of the coverage that has been made around 
climate change and how, how it relates to aquaculture and um, you know seafood farming. Is the coverage increasing? You know, we, we've mentioned the 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 water temperatures, but there's also the as the you know the dry the dry climates that's causing all these fires, which you know a few years ago in Australia has done a lot of damage and some hatcheries have been have been affected by that. What are your thoughts in terms of news coverage around climate change? I'm not I'm not I haven't planned anything specifically to to look at climate change. Um, but you know the there will be there will certainly be stories about it because people are preparing for it. The salmon industry, if we go back to that, is probably the one that is spending the most money on trying to alleviate problems it has now, which are partly caused by climate change in terms of its boats, the vessels it's buying to give better, um, more frequent freshwater treatments and things like submersible cages um, in some areas, um, semi-closed cages, floating semi-closed cages to prevent things like uh, micro jellyfish getting into cages and getting into the gills of the fish. A lot, a lot of what they're doing is, is related to climate change. And they're also trying um, to reduce their own impact in terms of the, their emissions from, from, their, from their, their own boats and vehicles and um, feed barges and things like that. Although the, the problem that all fish farmers face is that their, most of their emissions are actually um, from one of the, is it scope three? The ones, uh, this basically comes through fish feed and the, the feed that they buy in. So that, and there's a limit to what they can do with that because they've got, they don't have full control of that. But, uh, but the fish, the feed manufacturers are doing the same. They're doing what they can, but I, and I don't, I don't see them changing species anytime soon. Well, Gareth, we, we really appreciate your, your input. It's been nice to kind of review the, the year of, of guests and, and interesting quotes and interesting themes that we've talked about. Be interesting to see where we go in, in 2024. We're coming up to the end of our first season of salmon farming inside and out. So hopefully maybe we see a, a second season, but let's open 2024 for a happy new year and happy headlines. How about that? Great idea. Happy headlines. Thanks for joining us, Gareth. I appreciate all the insights that you provided in our uh, conversation today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If you have a comment on today's episode or would like to suggest a topic for a future episode, connect with Aquaculture North America on Twitter or through our LinkedIn and Facebook pages. This podcast is sponsored by Merck Animal Health. Together, we can ensure welfare and sustainability for aquatic species. <music>